Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, welcome in, and here we go. It's David Summers, and it's another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America, as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring, back into time. We get wall-to-wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. So we've got really hot weather almost everywhere around the USA for now. What's it like up higher in Tennessee, Ron? Oh, man, I guess we're lucky, Dave. You know, uh, we're in the 80s, uh, nighttime into the 60s. Uh, oh, oh, You know, wow, I mean, it's pays to be in the mountains, I guess. Yeah, I think that's why they call it God's country, right? <laughs> sure cooler sure cooler than uh, what's going on down there i see what y'all are getting man we're in mid to upper 90s a good portion of the daytime and then maybe 75 in the overnight which is still a little sticky no matter what time of day it is hey listen i, t- I gotta tell you this ron your last stud cast was the most downloaded one ever i don't i'm not sure if you knew that no man i wasn't man i wasn't aware of that man uh, you know, I guess I'm really lucky, Dave. Uh, I got such a broad and dedicated audience, man. I got fans literally from all over the world. Well, you're probably too too humble to admit this whole thing, but it's truly amazing. The more episodes your studcast airs, the bigger the fan base seems to get. Your next studcast after this one will be, can you believe this? Six years you've been doing this, stud. Wow, it's hard to believe, man, uh, uh, that that's one third as long as my entire wrestling career, man. <laughs> I only wrestled for eighteen years, and I've been doing these for six. Wow, it's amazing. Uh, you know, I've lived a blessed life, man. I, I thank everybody out there listening, and uh, and I hope you can continue. Uh, hope we can continue this, man, for another six years. Uh, I feel like my family's unique story, man, uh, and its contribution to the sport is is maybe the reason we have so many listeners. Okay, Stud, going back to the last Studcast, number 310, in my opinion, it was the most downloaded one yet with completely different historic information about all kinds of subjects. Both territories were covered in this thing. It had an NWA convention story, a tribute to two fallen stars, a complete all-star card from Knoxville, an opinion on what may be coming in the Gulf Coast Territory's future, and it had a whole bunch more than that, Ron. 
uh, I think it was certainly a good example of what I was experiencing in the summer 1979. My life, man, was like a roller coaster with all these uh, new twists and turns every day. Uh, this is good, was a great example of what I'm talking about. Uh, in the same week uh, that we're going to be talking about in this studcast, I was in Las Vegas for another NWA meeting. This time, I wasn't there as a guest wrestler like the last time that, uh, that I've talked about with some of the fans, but uh, I was going to be there as an NWA owner member at 27 years old. I was the youngest <laughs> owner inductee in the history of the NWA. And by 1979, I was already a member for five years. Wow. <laughs> wow. You were a kid when you joined, I guess you would say. That's a remarkable stud. At only 32, you had already been a member of the National Wrestling Alliance for five years. Uh, that's correct, man. Uh, things obviously were a- happening fast for me. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I look back at it, six years later, at 37, I was going to be elected vice president of the NWA. Okay, wait now. I never knew that you you were the vice president of the NWA. Uh, yeah, man. Uh, you know, NWA meeting information, it wasn't common knowledge. I mean, fans didn't know anything about that stuff. And uh, sadly, three years later, if you think about this, Dave, the really amazing is 1985 was the vice president. Three years later, in the summer of 88, I left the sport entirely, along with most of the owners uh, that had been meeting every summer in uh, Las Vegas for, for more than 30 years, man. Hmm. Uh, everything fell apart. All wow. of wrestling changed over a short period in that three years from 85 to about 88. I never saw most of those guys again. But the really sad part about it was wrestling, the sport itself, was never the same again, ever. I can certainly uh, agree with that. I can't believe we started this studcast this way. I, I guess that's why we get into so many things each episode now, Ron. The rides are so different each time we saddle up. This one is called, this is number 311. Number 311, it's called Golf Andre versus Ox, Tennessee, Dad's Back. So which one is first today? How do we start? Well, I think we're going to begin, man, with the with the begin this ride in the southeastern Knoxville territory. Uh, we're going to take one of the first of several deep dives into where my mind was, kind of concerning the future of uh, that particular territory, uh, and uh, obviously thinking about the Gulf Coast as well. But uh, wow, the Knoxville situation was really totally different than anything I'd ever I'd ever experienced. So we'll be discussing the August nineteen. Uh, August the 17th, Knoxville Cart, 1979. We'll talk about the TV that promoted that card. We'll talk about the results of that card, the attendance. Uh, plus, we'll uh, we'll talk about the uh, attendance for the All-Star uh, opposition wrestling match. Uh, it was the night after ours. And then uh, we'll be uh, in the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory. Uh, we'll be looking at the Pensacola card, which was headlined by Andre the Giant versus Ox Baker. And Andre was a very rare, for him was an extremely rare one-day visit. Uh, that was very unusual. He used to stay four or five days. And we'll talk about that TV show down there and the difficulty in putting that show together because we had a superstar, but he's only in one city uh, for, and for a week's worth of matches. That's not a good situation for you in trying to put together a TV show. 
So then we'll give the results of the Pensacola cart. We'll talk about the attendances down there. And uh, obviously in the other three major markets down there as well. And I'm also going to follow up on some things that we spoke of last studcast about the likelihood of competition in the Gulf Coast territory as well as Tennessee. Wow. Keep saying it, man. You know, uh, hopefully we're going to have a learning tree question in here one of these days. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, uh, and I feel kind of confident. Hopefully today, Dave, this is going to be our day to get a learning tree in. Well, that does sound ambitious, Stud. We'll see what happens. Listen, I keep thinking it too. So, all right, you got so much information in history, every Studcast lately, that we're lucky lucky to finish in an hour and a half. That being said, let's shoot for that learning tree question and get to writing right now. So, where was your mind concerning the southeastern Knoxville territory in the middle of August of the year, the dreaded year, 1979? Well, man, I was very disappointed that, that we had not been able to significantly grow the Knoxville cards uh, since the war began, which at this point was about 10 weeks earlier, 10, 10 studcasts ago, uh, we were starting the Knoxville war. And the always popular Knoxville fair was coming in two weeks. Now we're in uh, late August, and uh, you know, so you've got the fair arriving, you've got school starting back, uh, and it was officially basically the fall of the year. And all three of those events, uh, you know, it led up to it being the worst time for the sport. And it wasn't just in the south and it wasn't in Tennessee and just along the Gulf Coast. Uh, traditionally, the fall of the year was the worst for, for wrestling all over the country. So I'd hope by this point our crowds for Knoxville would have been back up into that 5,000 range where it had been for about two years, the last two, almost three years. And that would have given us the momentum that we needed to survive this. Every fall, you the business used to drop off at least about 20%. And that always occurred and had been every fall since I had been there. The last show was the biggest of the summer. The last one, the last week's show, biggest of the summer so far. But it was only 4,000. So in addition to all of this, uh, soon the opening of the fair was going to knock us out of Chihuahua Park completely for three weeks. So uh, we had booked the most expensive, uh, you know, place we could go to Coliseum. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to avoid going back to Bill Meyer baseball stadiums like we always had in that first couple of weeks of September uh, because, well, you know, We'd never drawn a big crowd there. We had never had a great results in that Bill Myers Stadium. So we had set up to go to the Coliseum instead. So the anticipated 20% drop, if you think about it, from that 4,000 fans who was there in the last show, that could mean that we we're going to expect uh, maybe no more than about 3,200 uh, for the shows that are upcoming after that. For each of those three expensive Coliseum shows coming up, mm-hmm. that's not a good deal. Uh, that 3,200 fans, an average ticket price about $4 a person, which it was back in those days, mm-hmm. equaled just, just about a $13,000 gross. So. Okay, you know, this is really interesting to me, Stud. You have never broken things down for us quite like this before. You said you were going to give us an idea of where your mind was concerning the future of the Tennessee Territory. So this is a series of very bad-looking, predicted future houses, especially 
with the additional expenses of running in the Coliseum. So what do you think was running through the minds of the Knoxville Five while all this was going on? Well, none of them had uh, ever owned a wrestling business before, those five guys. They'd just been wrestlers. So I doubt they're even taking a look at the future, you know. And if they were, you know, it wasn't looking good for them either, obviously. Their houses were a lot smaller. They were also going to lose the park's facilities because the fair went into the park. They took the amphitheater for uh, close to three weeks. And we were going to be out of there for three weeks, and so were they. So, and they were also going to drop off 20%, you know, whether they knew it or not, it was going to happen to them because that was the way business was. And uh, there was this crowd, you know, uh, their last crowd was only about 700. So if they dropped off 20% off of their 700 crowd, they were only going to draw around 500 fans for the next three weeks after this event. (laughs) So the 500 fans, an average ticket price of $4 a person was a, about two thousand dollars gross compared to thirteen thousand that we were going to be. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there's a pretty good difference right there. That's fascinating stuff, Stud. So, what were your thoughts about these figures and the future of Southeastern Knoxville? Well, remember, Dave, there were two territories uh, for me to consider, not just one. I had to think about both territories, and then the second part of this studcast, we're going to take a closer look at the Southeastern Gulf Coast territory. And uh, we'll be talking about it in the same form and fashion as we have about this little thing here with Knoxville. And then I guess I'll probably be better able to give everybody an answer to that question, you know, about uh, about the future of southeastern Knoxville. Okay, fair enough. So let's start with the Knoxville Card and Chill Howie Park then. Friday night, August 17th, 1979. Well, the opening match was Ted Allen versus Knoxville's Rick Connors. Trained guys around there, been around there a long time. Pretty good little wrestler, too, and uh, and a pretty decent little shooter. Uh, Dino was a meeting uh, Eddie Mansfield. Paul Orndorff, making his second appearance, was taking on uh, Alexis Smirnoff. Man, he's jumped up big time from Eddie Mansfield the week before. Uh, Tony Charles wrestled a mass newcomer, the Korean assassin whose size and body very much resembled Kevin Sullivan that had lost a loser leave Southeastern match to Dick Slater the week before. So I'm going to say exactly who he was, but uh, he certainly looked like Kevin Sullivan, I'd say. The Korean assassin did. Uh, then for the Southeastern Championship, the new champion, Mongolian Stomper, managed by Gorgeous George Jr., was going to be defending against Dick Slater, who lost the belt to him two weeks earlier in the Lumberjack match the one in which Kevin Sullivan got involved. And then the main event was the six-man elimination match. No disqualification, no time limit. And as a man was defeated in these elimination matches, he had to go to the dressing room. And, uh, and the match went on until all three of the men on one of the teams had been defeated. Obviously, the other team at that point won. Uh, it was going to be all three of the Fullers, me, Rob, and my dad, and uh, we were going to be against Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, and Tor Tanaka. Okay, that was a very good six-card match. So what was on the TV to promote the match? Well, Dick Slater was at the set with Les, and uh, he had beaten Kevin Sullivan in the Loser Leaves Southeastern match with Larry Knight before. Uh, they watched a video of that match, and uh, Slater said how glad he was to have Sullivan gone and out of here. 
and Les invited him to stay at the set with him for comments because the new Southeastern champion, the Mongolian stalker who had won it two weeks before and was managed by George George Jr. was in that first TV match. Obviously, the Mongol got himself another win. And then uh, in the second match, boy, we, we had a very impressive man. And I got to say, he really was Paul Orndorff, man, uh, at this point in his life. Wow. And he got his first TV win. Uh, he was fantastic shape. Gosh, he was he was ripped. And uh, the fans loved him from the very beginning. And they were really getting behind him uh, big time after a guy had only been there two weeks. That, that, that didn't happen normally. And like I said, it was his second week in the territory, and uh, he was going to be moving up the card fast, no doubt about that. The personality profile was with all three of the fullers, my dad, Rob, and I. Uh, we watched videos from two matches the night before. And our father had been there that night before. Uh, you know, he came to see the matches because uh, it was a big night for us. Uh, you know, and so me and Rob were uh, – uh, going back to trying to win our Southeastern Tag Championship back from Tanaka and Fuji. And uh, plus, Rob had, a, had his hair up against uh, Jimmy Golden in the hair versus hair match. So Dad had come to, to watch both of those events. And so on the end of this first video, we watched the, the night before, uh, both of them from the night before. I had the fuller leg lock on Mr. Fuji on the end of the tag match. Rob was tied up with Tanaka. The referee was with Rob and Tanaka. Uh, Fuji was doing his best to fight his way out of the fuller leg lock, man. I don't think he'd ever put, it, put on that hold on him before. I don't think he realized there's no getting out of this, dude. You know, you just, you're hurting yourself for no reason. You ain't going anywhere. And uh, so gorgeous George Jr., at this point, uh, referee's back turned. He's over there with Rob and Tanaka. He starts to come into the ring. And uh, obviously his, his mindset was he's going to kick me off and, uh, and see what happened from there. But uh, then uh, nobody even knew that my dad was there. Obviously, you know, people didn't know uh, he didn't, he wasn't making himself uh, present out there to everybody. And uh, all of a sudden dad uh, runs down the ringside and he grabs Gigi's leg. He just holds on to his leg. Well, Fuji wasn't going anywhere, man. And, uh, so finally, he had to give it up. And uh, and I knew, man, I, I'd hurt his leg bad. Uh, you know, sometimes when I had that hold, uh, you get excited. Uh, you could hear tendons tear. And mm. you, some funny stuff happened with that hold. Mm. And um, so it was a, it was his, turned out to be Fuji's last Southeastern match ever. Uh, Tanaka was furious, man, when the match was ended. And, uh, and, he, and he picked up... Uh, Fuji drug him over to the edge of the mat and he picked up Fuji in his arms like he was a baby, man. Carried him back to the dressing room. It was the last time the two of those guys ever wrestled together as partners in Southeastern. Then the profile kind of changed gears at that point. So we watched Rob's match against Jimmy for the hair. And uh, so, uh, you know, I know that uh, Rob was about to finish him off in in this match. And then uh, Norvell and Tanaka came came back uh, to the ring. Uh, it ended up with a kind of strange situation, uh, you know, for Jimmy because uh, uh, we had beat uh, Norvell and Tanaka both, and we were all three of us still involved in the match, and Jimmy was by himself. So it 
Turned out to be a wild end to the match. Uh, before Robert could uh, leave the ring, uh, Dad and I uh, kind of uh, kind of stopped uh, Jimmy. Uh, and uh, so, you know, uh, his dad, dad, we threw him back in the ring. And uh, uh, this is, he had lost, he had lost his the hair. He had lost his hair from the week before, you know, and, uh, and uh, Dad and I had held him down and uh, Rob sheared his hair off. And then all three <laughs> of us, man, uh, uh, had the barber come in and do finish up the job. So the amazing <laughs> part of this profile day was how much the studio crowd, uh, having been there the night before, uh, enjoyed watching this video again. <laughs> it, it was like uh, you know, basically we watched the Jimmy Jimmy get his head shaved, the whole deal, you know, and uh, and I think they enjoyed it uh, more than they did when it actually happened. Man. And that was kind of a tribute. A tribute to Jimmy Golden's commitment and his skill, man, of making himself uh, a complete transformation from a baby face to a red-hot heel in only five weeks. He'd only been healed for five weeks. He had mm. that much heat. So you add the fact that uh, shaving his head was probably one of the hardest things for him to handle as a young, good-looking man. <laughs> and it said everything about how much Jimmy loved the sport to allow himself to allow us to cut his hair off and uh wow and pretty amazing old down deal yeah and i don't recall if you have ever told us if you had summertime ratings or not but for me as a youngster watching tv that was a huge spike that was a huge bonus and i can imagine people were getting on phones near and far going hey 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 did you see jimmy golden get his head shaved they they showed it on tv so I find it hard to believe you could t- you could talk Jimmy or any wrestler into getting his head shaved unless there was some kind of other compensation. So what about that? Did, did, did that happen for him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, you, you can imagine, Dave, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I ended up giving him $500, man, $500 bonus to, uh, to shave his head. That was a lot back then, but I would have been, still been like, that's it? <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Well, you know, you got to bear in mind, Dave, this was 1979. Yeah, yeah. In today's money, that $500 was more than 2000 Wow. Okay? Wow, right. So, And then think about this. Back in that day in 1979, you could buy a brand new Ford, like a Fairlane, <laughs> for less than $1,500. So, you know, yeah. for three times the money I gave him, he could buy a brand new car. Right? I mean, it was so that $500 was a lot of money. Yeah, when you think about it that way, okay, I'll go with you on that. It's still hard to imagine today, but I'm sure that that was true back then. So the things that that we get into here, that's that's amazing. All right, this is another eye-opening stud cast, obviously. So what was the next thing on that TV show? Well, Gorgeous George Jr. came to the set. He brought Tanaka with him, and he brought a new masked man with him. Nobody had ever seen it at this point. Uh, introduced, uh, Chichi introduced him as the Korean assassin. Here's, here's, to, you know, to, uh, you, uh, the Fullers, uh, especially Ron Fuller, is, is a hurt Fuji, and obviously he's not going to be here. And uh, we got a new guy for Tanaka here, uh, the Korean assassin, that's his name. So they watched the end of the same video that we'd watched in the personality profile, where Rob and I had won the Southeastern belts back from Fuji and Tanaka. And, uh, and Fuji being carried to the dressing room by Tanaka the night before. And Gigi said uh, that his new man, the Korean assassin, because of what had happened last night, 
but right now he was going to begin to get even for Mr. Fuji's injury. So when this masked man uh, followed uh, by gorgeous George Jr. and Tanaka headed for the ring, the fans got their first good look at him, right? And almost instantly, there was no doubt who he was. Even though you couldn't see his face, his body was instantly recognizable. <laughs> Kevin had a, a unique body, right? And, uh, so Kevin had lost the loser leave Southeastern match the night before to Dick Slater. And uh, so the studio, the studio audience, man, they, they just started, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. <laughs> like they knew who he was. Pretty much as soon as they saw him, it was like, mm-hmm. wow, we know who this is. So uh, Tony Charles was wrestling Kevin the next, uh, you know, in the next week. So uh, and he came to the set with Les, and he he was laughing about it. He said, you know, he said if I didn't Kevin Sullivan Les, he goes under that mask. He said he has to be his twin. This he must have a twin. Right? So everything about Kevin at this point, wearing a mask, calling himself Korean assassin, was pretty much a joke. But uh, well, it wasn't a joke to the guy that was wrestling Kevin when he got to the ring, man. I mean, Kevin was he was like a different person. He was just devastating. He, 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 he did some horrible things to the guy. And then he clotheslined him at the end of the match. And the guy had to be carried, man, from the ring. I mean, he couldn't get up. And uh, uh, Tanaka and, uh, and, and, and Gigi are both raising the Kevin's hand, the Korean assassin's hand. And, they're making a big deal out of it. And uh, mm-hmm. wow, after watching him work as a heel, I was like, son of a good. Kevin's going to be a monster. All right, hang on, Ron. Kevin Sullivan lost a loser's leave match, Southeastern match, the night before. And he comes back the next day on TV with gorgeous George Jr. as his manager. He's wearing a mask and calling himself the Korean assassin. So <laughs> how does he, how can he do that? How does he get away with that? And uh, nobody saw his face, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> right. I mean they saw his body, obviously. There was and, no and chant from the crowd, right? Yeah. You know, <laughs> everybody knew who it was, right? But, uh, you know, until somebody took that mask off and proved it was Kevin Sullivan, uh, nobody's going to do anything about it, right? So, so you know, I'll say this, uh, he certainly had everybody's attention, that's for sure, man, in his first appearance. Go, the last TV match, man, Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, Tora Tanaka, was uh, three very unlucky opponents in that match. Uh, Golden wore a shower cap over his bald head, had it strapped down tightly <laughs> underneath his chin. <laughs> and uh, these three, man, uh, were extremely angry, man, <laughs> just about the... Uh, did as much uh, damage as the Korean assassin had in the match before him. Mm. Six-man elimination match six days later with them, and the three of us was going to be a classic. Yeah. All right, that's uh, that was great TV. So what happened the next Friday night in Chilhowee Park Amphitheater? Well, Ted Allen beat Rick Connors in the opening match. Uh, Dean Ho, you know, uh, Dean Ho and uh, Eddie, Eddie Mansfield wrestled to a 20-minute time limit draw. Uh, Paul Orndorff got his biggest win yet. He beat Alexis Smirnoff, man, which was, wow, pretty amazing. Uh, Paul was in his, his uh, first or second year, man, he, and he looked great. In a special challenge match, the Korean assassin got a 
very big win over Tony Charles. He actually beat Tony Charles. Uh, I think he was, Kevin was much better as the Korean assassin as he was as Kevin. Now, then the Southeastern Championship match between the champion Mongolian Stomp, managed by Gorgeous George Jr. and Dick Slater, was won by Slater. But it was by disqualification, so the Stomper was still the champion. And then the elimination tag was different than most fans expected. Uh, we were able to eliminate both Norvell and Tor Tanaka without any of the three of us losing the fall. And at that point, uh, you know, uh, it was basically all three of us against Jimmy Gold. Right? So, so Jimmy got out of the ring and he took the microphone and he challenged me and Dad to leave the ring and let just Robert and him go at it alone, right? So uh, Rob told us to go, and the, and the crowd wanted to see it too, right? Because they'd already seen the hair from the week before, you know? So so uh, so, so we went back to the dressing room. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we disappeared into the dressing room, well, here came Norvell and Tanaka running back to the ring, and all three of them got Rob uh, busted his eye. Mm. And uh, before we could get back to the ring, uh, they kind of ran a they kind of ran a muck in there. And then uh, when we got back to the ring, referee uh, they ran. The three of them just left the ring. Rob <laughs> was laying there; he was bleeding, and the ref uh, counted golden out, and he raised our hands. Uh, and it wasn't the way we or the fans had wanted it to end. But uh, you know, we didn't. None of us got beat. You know, but. Uh, Wow, it ended up in a nasty deal. So Rob was he was really upset. We finally got his uh, faculties about him, and uh, and he he grabbed the microphone from the from the announcer, you know, who was announcing that we had won the match, and he challenged Golden, you know, and uh, and he challenged him to a loser leave Southeastern match the next week. He said Jimmy Golden, you know, I want I want to I want to have a loser leave with you, man. I I'm not finished with you. I want to finish you with you. You'll be gone. So Jimmy came out of the dressing room, and uh, but he wouldn't come to the ring because he was afraid that we'd get him. And so he motioned the announcer to bring the microphone to him back by where he was by the dressing room, and he said, "He said, yeah, Robert, I'll take your challenge." Uh, he says, "But but here's the deal." He goes, uh, "I'll leave if you beat me, Rob. I'll leave." But he goes. Uh, but I want you, if I beat you, I want you to shave your head. <laughs> so the match was made then and there for the next main event the next week. All right, let me get this straight. Rob was going to have his head shaved if he lost, and Jimmy was going to leave Southeastern if he lost. That was it. That wow. was the main event for the next week, man. And uh, and also in our next Udcast, uh, that's going to be the main event, obviously. And lucky. It was going to be in the Coliseum because the amphitheater was getting set up for the Tennessee Fair. We were going to be out of there for three weeks. It was the first of those three. And a beautiful part of that was we didn't have to worry about the rain, man. Okay, so that lost night due to rain happened a month earlier. I can see where being inside the Coliseum had to take a load off your mind. So how about the attendance for that particular night? Well, we had about 3,500 that night. Uh, it was down from the 4,000, about 500 down from the week before. But it was still 2,500 more fans than the All-Star crowd the next night. All so, right. Uh, you know, they, they, they were still struggling along. 
Yeah, gotcha. All right, so another great first half of this Studcast. I tell you what, folks, when we we return, we're going to be welcoming Andre the Giant to Pensacola, Florida, versus the enormous Ox Baker. That's coming up when this Studcast continues in a moment. Hey, Studcast fans, are you aware that Ron has 43 super Studcasts on his TNStud.com website for only $2.99 each? More than 30 different wrestlers join him live with their stories and experiences. The most up-close and personal interviews in wrestling history. Tributes to fallen stars like Andre the Giant, Bob Armstrong, Ron Wright, The Assassin Jody Hamilton, Adrian Street, and and Jim Barnett, each and every one of them, almost three hours long. Go to tnstud.com, tnstud.com, click Super Studcast. Make your choice, only $2.99 each. Sit back in the saddle and ride into history. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in. This has been so much great information in the first part of this one, Ron. I can't wait to hear about the Andre the Giant and Ox Baker match in the southeastern Gulf Coast Territory that's coming up in this half. The last time Andre came to the Gulf Coast Territory was three months earlier to wrestle the Hulk in Pensacola, Florida. He was back again in the same city. So who else was on that card? It's Tuesday night, August 14th, 1979. What you got? Well, Roy Lee Welch opened up that card against Herb Calvert. Uh, Ron Slinker wrestled against a really good wrestler from Columbus, Georgia, Ted Oates. Crusher Blackwell uh, wrestled against the Inferno. It was a Southeastern Championship match. Uh, the champion, Austin Idol, defended against Pierre Bonnet, guy from Montreal, Canada, a good friend of Louis Tillette's. Uh, pretty darn good wrestler, too. The Southeastern tag belts were on the line. The champion assassins defending against the Samoans in the main event and was another one of those battle of the giants like it had been about uh, three months earlier. Uh, seven foot four inch, 484 pound Andre the Giant against six foot eight inch, 325 pound Ox Baker. Wow. All right. So that's another very good six card match. Two championship matches. And an excellent main event. So how about the TV that sets all this up? Well, that's where the problem was, Dave. Uh, Andre was only in for one night. And uh, how do you build a TV show around the, the best possible main event that you could have in the territory, but it's going to only appear in one city out of the six for that week? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and even that city is not one of the three largest cities. So, you know, it's really a, it's like a Booker's nightmare, except for the Pensacola night. Uh, this was destined to be pretty much another bad week down there. Uh, TV was going to have to promote, uh, you know, that uh, it, it, it was going to be able to promote Andre big time. And, uh, and uh, with it, because he wasn't in the two out of the three major markets, mm -hmm. only the mobile market was going to have the, uh, the promotion and the mention of Andre at all. So the best uh, mobile TV could get to promote Andre and Ox was an interview from Andre. And that was going mm -hmm. to be inserted in the personality profile in the mobile TV show. All right. So I I, it's crazy, man. 
Okay, I guess this is what you mentioned earlier in the studcast about the difficulty of putting together a TV show, which when you had a star that was going to appear, but only once in one city. Yeah, it's a huge problem for any booker. Uh, it, it almost, you know, it, it was almost uh, not worth it to have him there at all. It doesn't sound like, a, like that could be true, but it is, you know. And uh, when it was only for one night, it was very, very difficult to book your, your uh, entire uh, week off of that. So the card for all three of the major cities was going to have a different main event than the Pensacola card, which actually was uh, Ox Baker uh, meeting Andre. Uh, but in, uh, in all the other cities, Ox Baker is going to be wrestling against Crusher Blackwell in the three major cities in the Texas death match. That's the main event in those towns. So this TV opened with Charlie Platt, Ox Baker to sit. It was the third week in a row that Ox was meeting Crusher Blackwell. And it was the first week, uh, the first week they met in a regular match. The second time they met in a lumberjack match. And then this coming week in the three major cities, uh, they were going to be wrestling in a Texas death match. Well, Ox had both of his fist tape, and, uh, and he bragged that he was finally going to be in a Texas death match with Blackwell. You know, and he said, you know, that was going to be Crusher's last match because he, he said he was the only wrestler hmm. talking about himself, Ox. He <laughs> said, I'm basically the only wrestler known the world over for actually creating death. In death matches. Uh, are you kidding, Ron? All right. After what really happened in two matches in his career, when he heart punched both wrestlers, they died. He, I mean, he said that in an interview. Gosh. Well, you know, well, I'll tell you what. It, it was it was a pretty nasty deal. Charlie called me up on the phone uh, as soon as the TV was over, and he said, uh, "I said this TV, you know," and. Uh, and that fact, it wasn't common knowledge to every wrestling fan and definitely wasn't known by people that didn't know much about wrestling. So after saying that, uh, Ox went to the ring and, uh, and he did his thing, man, uh, which was basically to scare all the fans almost to death. I mean, he was a scary dude. And, uh, you know, now he had made an interview saying, you know, he brings death to death matches. I mean, wow, you it's crazy. So. So beyond the second, before the second TV match, the Gladiator joined Charlie at the set, and uh, he watched his non-title win over the Southeastern champion Austin Idol from Mobile three days earlier, which was a very rare loss for Idol. Idol had beaten beaten some great competition in the last few weeks, and uh, he got uh, he got tagged by uh, the Gladiator. So uh, Idol made his feelings about the loss man crystal clear. He was in the second match, and as soon as uh, you know, Gladiator, who bragged about, about beating him. I mean, uh, Idol was wrestling Herb Calvert, and he had no no sympathy for Calvert. He put his figure four leg lock on him. He wasn't going to let him up, even after Calvert, uh, Calvert uh, submitted. Uh, and Gladiator had to leave the set and went to the ring, and that's the only way Idol was going to let him go, it appeared. So Gladiator was going to be facing Idol for the Southeastern belt in all three of the major cities except for Pensacola, because Idol was going to be defending his belt there against Pierre Bonnet. So the personality profile in both the Montgomery and Dothan TV shows was uh, with the new star, Crusher Blackwell. And he was facing Ox Baker in the Texas death match in all three of those major cities. 
Uh, Crusher was very humble, soft-spoken, always was, and he had grown up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta, and that was the former home of Ray Gunkel, uh, the one of the two wrestlers that had died after a heart punch for the Mox Baker happened in Savannah, Georgia, seven years earlier, in fact, that match happened. And uh, so Crusher was a huge Ray Gunkel fan, and he told the story of Ray's death. Uh, you know, which was a pretty sad deal uh, how it all went down and then he focused on Ox Baker and what he intended to do in these upcoming Texas death match you know and uh, he had heard Ox say you know that I, I, I'm a, I know how to cause death in these death matches and uh, and so he said uh, Ox Baker might have a heart punch you know but he said you know Charlie so do I you know and he says and my heart punch is totally different. He says, my heart punch is I'm going to climb up on that top rope and I'm going to jump off for 425 pounds in, <laughs> in the baker's chest. And that's my heart punch. Wow, that's close to an earthquake, uh, too, I think. All right, that sounded like a great profile. I noticed Mobile's TV show did not get this profile. So what did they do on their profile? Well, the Mobile TV show had its own personality profile. Uh, we were pre-recorded it before the TV show began in Dothan. And this one had Ox Baker on it with Charlie. And uh, and, it, and it showed the interview that Andre the Giant had sent in, plugging the match in Pensacola. And uh, because of that, man, Andre, was a, he was a huge draw. We anticipated we were going to get another sellout in Pensacola. Uh, and we anticipated because it had happened when Hulk had wrestled Andre there a couple of months earlier that uh, a lot of people from Mobile, because it's only 50 miles from Pensacola, were going to come to Pensacola again like they had last time. So uh, let's get back to the present TV show. Uh, Crusher, you know, uh, he had done the, his personality profile live right there in front of the audience. So as soon as he finished the profile, he went straight in the ring. And he amazed fans again because, uh, you know, what he was, what he was, what he could do with his huge 425 pounds was amazing. Uh, and he won the match with two back-to-back drop kicks, planted perfectly with both feet right in the opponent's face at 425 pounds. And he, he was mad. He was a he was a a marvel. Uh, TV show ended with the Southeastern Tag Champion. All assassins getting a strong win. While the former champions, the Samoans, uh, sat down with Charlie to sit, they talked about the team and how good these assassins were. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they were getting their another match, another chance to win their championship back. All right. So that sounds like a really good TV show uh, as well, Stud. But what happened in Pensacola Tuesday night, August 14th, 1979? Well, Roy Lee Welch uh, pulled out a win over Herb Calvert. Ron Slinker beat Ted Oates. Uh, Crusher Blackwell uh, got the best of the Inferno. Austin Idol successfully defended his Southeastern belt against the Canadian, uh, Pierre Bonnet. Uh, In the Southeastern Tag Championship match, uh, both teams got disqualified. Uh, That had been pretty much uh, what they'd been doing in every town, the Samoans and the Assassins. Match was called a no contest. Uh, then in the Andre and Ox paper, uh, the last match, Roy Lee told me, wow, Ron, it was an unbelievable match. And he said the assassins at the end of the match came down. Uh, uh, Andre was about to finish Ox off, and the assassins came down to the ring to help uh, 
to help Ox. And, uh, and they said uh, that once they got there, they stopped uh, Andre and the two assassins held Andre and Ox Baker hit him with a heart punch. And uh, Crusher Blackwell and the Samoans came down then to Andre's rescue, basically. And uh, Roy said there was almost a riot, man, when Baker and the assassins left the ring trying to get back to the dressing room. Fans were really, really upset. Uh, uh, they had to help Andre back to the dressing room. Uh, wow. Had to be a crazy wild match. It sounds like a very dangerous finish to a great night of wrestling. So how about the attendance in the three major cities and in, in Pensacola? Well, the crowds have been steadily dropping for three weeks in a row at this point. I mean, basically since that Dothan, NWA World Title Night, uh, when Hulk and Billy Spears uh, both disappeared off the cards after that night. Uh, Montgomery uh, was at 2,300. Uh, Mobile was right under 3,000 at 2,900. And Dothan was 2,500. Uh, Pensacola, with Andre on the card, was kind of like we thought, another sellout, man, about 5,100 was all that auditorium down there on the on the bay would hold. Uh, hmm. But uh, I had to attribute that not to being our crew, but to being Andre the Giant that drew that one. Wow. All right. Earlier in the stud cast, I asked about your thoughts on the Knoxville Territory's future. And you said, let's wait until we see what was happening in the other territory. All right. You just told us that the houses had dropped three weeks in a row even in the Gulf Coast territory. So what were your thoughts about all this at this time in 1979? Well, I knew a lot more about what was going on in Tennessee than I did in the Gulf Coast, naturally. I had been in Tennessee at this point for months now. Uh, Louie and I didn't talk nearly as much to each other as we had when he was training the Hulk, as an example. You know, he was on fire. His enthusiasm was really big time. And uh, and on Louis' behalf, there had been a uh, real strong addition to the territory. He hadn't brought anybody in big time uh, after the Hulk uh, until he brought in Austin Idol. And then uh, shortly thereafter, he, now the assassins were in there. So I was concerned about Louis man, and, and his sudden lack of enthusiasm. Uh, and there were these rumors about former wrestlers that uh, I had not selected to be a part of Southeastern. When I bought the territory down there, there were a lot of wrestlers living down there in that part of the country. And uh, I couldn't couldn't give them all a job. So I picked and chose who I wanted to. And uh, those that didn't get picked, uh, I think a lot of them had got their feelings hurt. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a dangerous thing to have wrestlers with their egos hurt. Uh, you know, because uh, if another war started down there and uh, and you had a lot of guys that used to be wrestlers that were over there at one time and they wanted to wrestle for the other company, you know. So I was looking at a situation, uh, you know, and thinking a war in both territories at the same time, that could possibly end it all. I mean, you know, I could end up with nothing, no territory. So I was basically for the first time really questioning having two territories and could I be successful in saving both of them if I had to. So uh, then I was asking myself, you know, what if I had to choose which territory would I take and what would I do with the other one? Hmm. So hmm. I had all these crazy thoughts going on, man, that more and more just kept creeping into my mind. 
Well, all right. Here's the deal. You were 31 years old, kind of at a crossroads, I guess you would say, in your life. The decisions that you made were definitely going to affect your life forever, it seems like. All right. So how about I take you away from all this just for a minute, Stud, and give you a learning tree question for a change. You want to do that? <laughs> Thank you very much, Dave. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's been far too long, man, without a learning tree question anyway. But gosh, I'm glad. Uh, yeah, let's let's do the learning tree. Hey, let's do that. Let's bounce back with a, a really good one. And I'm kind of anxious to see what your answer is going to be for this. All right. So our learning tree question comes from Bobby Lane, San Francisco, California. He asked, quote, you come from one of the oldest and largest professional wrestling families in history and were a third generation wrestler and NWA member. Which one of your family members influenced you the most? Your grandfather or your father and why? Wow. That's a great question, man. Jeez. Uh, well, I hardly know where to start on this, one, man. Uh, you know, I guess, you know, uh, let's start with that. There was a lot of difference, man, between the two generations of Welch wrestlers in my lineage, man, prior to me, uh, and uh, let's just start with the height, basically. You know, my grandfather, Roy, was only five feet, eight inches tall. My father was six feet, two inches tall. He was six, six inches basically taller than his father. So, uh, and that was kind of only the beginning of the differences between these two guys. I mean, wow. Uh, so my grandfather, by all accounts, from the stories about him that were told to me by other wrestlers, was a... Uh, one mean son of a bee, man. <laughs> I'll leave out the rest of that. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's all I can say about him and, know, and what they said. You know, and, and one of the first stories he told me when I was about 10 years old, and uh, we used to, he used to be come visit uh, at, at, at his uh, dairy. He wasn't there, but about two or three days a week, usually uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. On Mondays, they had wrestling in Memphis, and uh, he would get me in the car, and uh, he would take me with him to Memphis. Uh, he had a dairy in Yorkville, Tennessee, which was about an hour and a half from Memphis. So uh, he asked me on this trip, you know, he said, what would you do if uh, if you had a fight with someone and, and you couldn't beat him? Now, you know, I'm, I'm a 10 years old, so that's, that's what I thought. That's a far out question for a 10 year old, you know? So, uh, basically I, I said, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, so, so, uh, so he said, uh, if you get into a fight and, and with somebody and you can't beat him, he goes, uh, then you got to eat him. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I asked, well, how do you do that? <laughs> how, do you, how do you eat him? <laughs> what do you mean? Right. So he said, you know, he said, you, well, he says, you know, you, you start with one finger and he said, you eat up that finger and then you eat up the next finger and then you eat the hand and then you eat the arm and so on. Until right? it's all gone. Right. So, uh, and uh, basically that was kind of my grandfather's mindset, man, and how he built his giant 12 state territory uh, that he made the home of it in Tennessee. Uh, he, I think he either beat him or he ate him, man, <laughs> to get there. Right? 
So, uh, you know, that's how I became uh, one of the founders of the National Wrestling Alliance in 1948, one of the original members of the National Wrestling Alliance in 48, because he controlled uh, basically uh, uh, most of the South. Uh, it, it, at one time, the biggest wrestling operation and maybe in the history of the sport. So his, his influence on me, uh, Mr. Lane, uh, was probably obviously uh, strength and power. And I mean, uh, he he certainly he certainly had that going for him. Now, now my father was totally different, probably because his father had already done the dirty work. <laughs> I mean, Roy had already done the nasty work of peace putting together a territory, and, and no telling how he did it. Wow. So, uh, but my father was was a multi talented guy. Uh, Dad was a welder. And he built his own wrestling rings and his own bleachers, his own sports arenas outside in Pensacola. He built an outside sports arena, basically, to have wrestling in. Uh, Dad could run a bulldozer, and he built dams uh, for all these farms and properties and ranches that we own. He built his own lakes on all these different places, and uh, he trained horses, and uh, he owned at one time an entire rodeo company. All the bulls, all the bronks, all the, yeah, he was crazy, right? He he owned thousands of acres of land during his life, and uh, he flew his own airplane, and he landed it on his own runway on on one of the farms and ranches, the big the Big Ben Ranch that he owned. So uh, you know, uh, and then God, he was he was like I said, he was crazy with. Atlanta was extending the airport in the mid-1960s, uh, and he bought 30 homes, 30 houses that were going to be where the runways were. And he moved all of those houses 30 miles south to a, a little town called Locust Grove, Georgia, where we had a farm. He repaired those houses, and he sold them to the poorest of neighbors uh, for half of what they were worth, half of what he had in them. I mean, he... He was, a, he was a strange dude. Uh, his accomplishments in wrestling, they overshadowed all of that by far. He built the first territory ever along the Gulf Coast, mm. all the way from Tallahassee to New Orleans. He ran everything on the Gulf Coast. And he was at the same age that I was when I built my first Southeastern Territory. Wow. 25 years old. Wow. You know? And in that territory... He drew one of the largest crowds in the history of Southern wrestling, Mobile, Alabama. He wrestled in the main event on that card. He exchanged hardways with Mario Galento in one of the most violent matches ever seen in the sport. Uh, then, six years later, he did it again in Atlanta in front of another Southern crowd record uh, in the territory they owned half of. He was famous in the business for advertising. Uh, he had the most creative ways of advertising, stuff that had never been done before by wrestling companies, for sure, and maybe not by hardly any company. And uh, that advertising was responsible for those big Southern records that he was drawing. And he also set records in Arizona between those two territories, between Atlanta and Mobile. And uh, Arizona, where wrestling had never been big, he, he set all-time records in the state of Arizona. So maybe the dad's biggest attribute and influence on me was how hard he worked. Uh, I never saw anybody work harder than my dad. Uh, he worked on the farms and the ranches all day. 
But we got up real early in the morning. He was the first one up. And, uh, and then uh, somewhere in the afternoon, he'd jump in the car and he'd, go, he'd leave to go to handle his other business, the wrestling business. He'd drive two, 300 miles, uh, wrestle, then drive back. He'd get home at two or three in the morning and he'd uh, go to bed. He'd be the first one up, man, after the, just after sunrise and out there in the field again. He did, did this for seven days a week. I mean, it was like, it was impossible. Nobody could be that tough. And then on countless nights, after all of this driving, he'd end up coming home, but he wouldn't come home alone. He'd have some down-and-out person man, who he'd picked up on the side of the road, a hitchhiker or whatever, and he'd get my mother out of bed and he'd have her cook, the, cook him a meal. Wow. Uh, he'd give that person the bed to sleep in that night. He'd have... He could, he'd have him uh, sit with us for breakfast the next morning. Mm-hmm. And I literally several times saw him take the coat off his back and put it on the guy's back before he let him leave. Wow. So, uh, you know, I could go all day, Mr. Lane. Uh, I mean, uh, this, obviously, there's no doubt who influenced me most. I mean, in relation to my father, Roy, uh, you know, in integration to my father, Roy, uh, you know, uh, dad outgrew him, basically, by six inches. Roy was 5'8", dad was 6'2". But uh, he also outgrew Roy in so many other ways, too. You know, uh, so, wow. And uh, and that's about the only thing I could brag about when it comes to the difference between me and my father. Uh, I outgrew my dad by six inches. But, you know... <laughs> That might be the only way out, Dave. Wow. You know, I, I think, as always, you're probably a little too humble, especially in this situation. Your father and grandfather, both members of the NWA, but never got elected vice president of the NWA, whereas you did. Neither of them was successful in another totally different sport like hockey and certainly not in the real business world like of security with a company like ADT, like you had to me, this is one of the best learning tree answers. I think probably ever, I tell you what, this stud cast has been absolutely awesome. Ron, one of my favorites so far. So where do we ride next week? We're going to be riding man, uh, uh, into the last week of August, 1979. Wow. We're just almost into the fall of the year. Uh, it's got a tremendous card in the Coliseum, man. Uh, they got Rob and Jimmy in that hair versus the loser leave match. Uh, Crusher Blackwell is going to return to Knoxville. The Korean assassin is going to make his Coliseum debut and so much more. And uh, we'll also talk about another great DB, the results of that Coliseum card and the attendances in the Coliseum and the competing all-star event uh, for the next night after our matches there. Then we're going to go uh, back, obviously, down south, the southeastern Gulf Coast, and uh, where it's continuing its slide, man, it's headed in the wrong direction, and and uh, and it's making I got a great concern at this point. Uh, every week, because I watched this attendance just continue to drop, the talent level down there was very weak at this point, and uh, some of the past names uh, returned there. You know, uh, Louis would bring back the past names instead of bringing in new people. And uh, so, you know, I, there was a big decision for me coming there about the booker. Uh, and, and I was going to have to make that decision soon. 
All right, on Facebook, folks, it's easy. Go to Ron Fuller Welch, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. Like him, follow him there to become friends with a living legend. It's the same on Twitter. Ron Fuller Welch on Twitter. Follow him there, too. Check out his fantastic website, tnstud.com. You'll find every studcast ever done, 43 Super Studcast, and Ron's Stud Store for all kinds of souvenirs, including the thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Get your personally autographed copy there. Check it out, tnstud.com. Ron's YouTube Southeastern Rewind is still red hot. 318 videos. The last 88 stud cast, including this one, 52 stud stories, and now 60 short rides with the stud, seven Ask the Stud question and answer shows, and a whole lot more there as well on YouTube, Southeastern Rewind. You can subscribe now, Southeastern Rewind. Put that in the search on YouTube. It'll come up, and then make sure you subscribe, and you'll see the very best in old school wrestling. That's the way it's meant to be. All right, any last comments, Stud? Well, gee, Dave, I'm so happy, man, with the response of fans from all around the world. I mean, it's just... It just knocks me out, and I can't believe how popular the Studcast have become. It and it seems like almost overnight. Uh, I got to thank everybody, man, out there for your support. Uh, please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at Gmail dot com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud. LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.